Welcome to the Winning with Shopify podcast. This is the podcast that will teach you to take your Shopify store and turn it into a business growing sales machine. It has the latest marketing, email, sales, SEO, and social media advice, and also has strategies and tips from the experts without fluff. Your host is Nick Truman. He's a Shopify expert and an education partner with the Shopify approved course, 1000 Sales and Beyond. He's the CEO of JustAskParker.com, a global specialist marketing agency for Shopify owners. Nick has over 13 years experience in digital marketing from PPC and SEO through to digital transformation of businesses. He's helped hundreds of brands from startup Shopify stores through to international enterprises that operate in hundreds of countries. Nick will be sharing his knowledge and interview the experts to help you in your journey to success. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Nick Truman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Winning with Shopify podcast. For anyone who's not tuned in before, my name's Nick. I've been hosting the podcast just over a year now, and I say this every week, and I sometimes even say that I say this every week. And as you can tell, I've had a lot of coffee today, and I'm very excited about today's episode. So we'll dive into that in a minute, but I've got a couple of bits of news to signpost, a couple of freebies for you guys, and a couple of ways you can engage and get more free support from the podcast and all the great work my team are doing behind the scenes of the podcast as well. We've just launched a new website, winningwithshopify.com. There's not a huge amount on there at the moment, but there are a few things I want to signpost to you guys to help you guys engage a little bit more with what we're doing on the podcast and what we want to do with the podcast as well. The podcast isn't designed to sell. It's not designed to be this big kind of fancy thing that we do every week. It's designed to purely help anyone who's working either in the Shopify space or the e-commerce space. So if you go to our website, winningwithshopify.com, there is a submission box on there at the moment. So you can submit an idea, a topic, something you really want to hear about. And then if we get lots of people submitting the same sort of topics, we'll run a series, we'll get hold of some of the experts, we'll interview them. And you can also even submit some questions on there. We may just email back directly and give you the answer. And as I say, we may then also run an episode and possibly even quote to you if you want to say, um, this was submitted by so-and-so and I'm going to ask this question today because I think it's relevant. So make sure you go and check out the new website. As I say, there's not a lot on there at the moment. There's just an email subscription for the newsletter and some exclusive offers. And then also the submit a request for an episode or for a series. So please go and check that out. That's the end of the sales spiel for today. We're going to dive in to what we're talking about at the moment. This is episode four of a series called Building a Killer Shopify Store. And as some of the people have mentioned, sending messages into me, it sounds weird, a British guy saying the word killer, because it's something you'd normally get from somebody in the US. So um, I'm going to keep saying it anyway. I'm going to roll with this wave that we're already on. Today, we've got a very special guest who's got an amazing background and also a podcast, which we'll find out about a little bit later as we go through. His name is Matt Edmonston, and I've been introduced to him by a previous guest as well, one of my favorite guests we've had on this year. So without further ado, Matt, welcome to the show. Oh, Nick, bless you. Thanks. It's great to be here, man. Great to be here. Enjoying talking to a Brit using the word killer, definitely. <laughs> we were joking just before we came on as well, we were just talking about very briefly saying like how fun it is that there's not many British podcasters out there. So we feel like we're really, uh, really doing something for the British Isles at the moment, which is uh, always a blessing. Flying the flag. We're definitely flying the flag. <laughs> and most notably is the Olympics is on at the moment. But uh, right, before we dive in, Matt, enough babbling about the Olympics and how many brilliant <laughs> medals our country has got, and I won't gloat any more than that. Um, tell us about yourself, your, your background, your podcast what you're what you're up to these days yeah sure well i've been doing e-commerce since 2002 is probably the most interesting step having been around it for so long it's been a fascinating journey for me and we've 
opened and closed online stores. We've sold sites. We've done all kinds of things over the years. Nice. And I genuinely love the fact that I can go to bed and wake up richer than when I went to sleep because somebody somewhere has purchased something off one of the sites. Do you know what I mean? I think it's a beautiful thing. And so, yeah, so I stumbled into e-commerce like most people did. It wasn't a plan. I certainly, one of my most popular sites is a beauty site. And I definitely, when I was at school, do you know when you had that careers advisor talk, right? Maybe when you're in your third year or something. I got kicked out of so many of those. (laughs) I was not, not welcome. Just because I didn't want to be a lawyer or an accountant. It was, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I actually did say I wanted to be the lawyer or the accountant. That's what I did at uni. But I never once said to them, I want to be the head of a really great beauty website. I want to be known for beauty. That's not what... <laughs> that was never on my agenda. That's for yeah. sure. So yeah, so been around since 2002. Like you said, we've got a podcast. It's called the e-commerce podcast. You know, the title, what's that advert? It is what it says on the tin. So how did you get from that then into e-commerce today? Like, what was the journey then? So you were obviously sitting at school, thinking about being a lawyer and accountant, not thinking about running an e-commerce business in beauty. Yeah, it was a funny one, eh? It was, uh, for me, it all started in the late 90s. I was working my job and then a friend of mine came to me and he said, listen, we need a website. Do you know any website companies? And I only knew one at the time run by some friends of mine and they were really expensive. This was when the web was starting to take off. And I, I, to this day, don't know why I said this to him, but in effect, I said to him, listen, bud, I'll create the website for you. There's, I knew that there was some software out there that would help you. And if you remember the days of Dreamweaver, that was the software I was talking about. Mm. Um, I said, if you buy that, it cost about £800 or what's that, about $1,200. It cost about 800 quid at the time. If you buy that, I'll figure out how the software works and I'll create your website. And he said, done, because he'd been quoted thousands to create this website. So that's how it started for me. It was just literally a chance conversation. And so I learned how to write computer code. I learned how to code a website. And then as the internet started to take off, more and more people started to talk about this whole buying thing online. I'm like, how easy is it to do that? You know, how easy is it to code that? And so what I did was I I went to a friend of mine who was selling tanning products of all things. And I said to him, listen, but if I write a website, can I sell your products on that website? I don't know if it's going to bomb. I don't know if it's going to do well, but can I, can I sell your products online? We'll see what happens. And he said, sure. And so we did. We launched our first website, 2002. I sold it actually to the, the guy I was buying the product from. He bought my e-commerce website six months later. Oh, wow. Um, selling his stuff. So yeah. Certainly a quick turnaround, six months from uh, inception. Um, and also Dreamweaver. What a tool. I mean, I won't say exactly how old I am, but I did many, many school projects on Dreamweaver when computers were just sort of really appearing in houses and that sort of thing. And I, I, remember, I remember my parents being absolutely furious because I failed this course, building a website about five a day and how important it is on, uh, on Dreamweaver. Oh, well. And the reason I failed is because I hadn't stuck to the brief, which was make a website about five a day. What I had done is I had started playing with uh, code and JavaScript and they were like, none of that was part of the course. And, and it's partly because they didn't know how to market mm. because all these coding languages were new. And you think the average British uh, IT teacher trying to teach kids how to use computers, which <laughs> I don't even think they have IT lessons anymore because it's so second nature. But you can just imagine the look on their face. And, yeah. Oh my gosh, this is not what we were looking for. So well, I remember my parents writing a letter and I, uh, I got an A star. It was the only A star I think I got that year in school. 
because they got a web developer friend of theirs to look at it and say, this is a really good code, actually. And we think <laughs> we would like him to come and work for us. And I, I, didn't, I didn't go work for them in the end, but, but they were like, this is good enough to get me a job, but it's not good enough to pass IT at a, a small secondary school in the UK. So. Well, listening to you talk is quite fascinating because every developer I have ever worked with has the same problem. Here's the brief, but what is created and what is done is not always what's written down on the piece of paper. Do you know what I mean? Because you like to play, you like to try things. You go, oh, it can do this now, it can do that now. Mm. And you're like, yeah, but that's not what we asked for. It's a, it's, a, it's a real common theme, I think, amongst the developing community. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Let's bring that into today's theme, actually, because that we didn't plan this, but that segues really nicely, actually, into what we're talking about, about building a really, really good Shopify store. I use the word killer again, just for any <laughs> small fan groups out there. But um, bringing that back into how we build a good store, I think every single Shopify store owner is guilty of the same thing that you and I definitely are, Matt, of you start tinkering and you just start going, oh, I can make that look a bit better and that look a bit better and that. And you're sort of breaking every rule there is. You're not doing it with a brief. You're not informing your teams. And also as the business owner, you're actually distracting yourself from the stuff you should be working on. The sort of work on the business, not in the business. But we all have that habit, don't we? And the frustrating thing is some of the best bits of code and the best things or functions or features you can add to a website come out of that. So I guess first big question then, how should somebody, regardless of where they are with their business, how should somebody look at their website and go, right, what what should I be doing to this e-commerce business? Like, what should I be doing to the website to improve it? Like, where, where's the first place you, you think they should go? So that's a great question. I think if you've already got a website that's up and running and you've already got people coming to the website and you've already got people buying from it, the, for me, the very first thing you've got to do is you've, you've got to put yourself in the mind of the person using your website. In other words, your customer, right? Mm. And it sounds really simple and it sounds really obvious, but for me, this is one of the key differentiators. I'll tell you a story. We'd been running our beauty website for about, I'm guessing about eight years. And every, every design, every design iteration of that website, I personally had done on Photoshop and then given it to the dev team. And it's like, this is what I want it to look like. This is what I want it to do. And because obviously I know exactly what I want in an e-commerce website. I know what an e-commerce website should do. And it wasn't until about eight or nine years into this journey, I kind of stopped myself and I thought, you know what, here I am. I'm a British middle class guy, right? <laughs> yeah. I am not my target customer for this website. And yet here I am designing this website for a whole bunch of people. So what I did was for the first time ever, I went to a friend of mine, he owns a design agency, still does, where his designers were predominantly female and of a similar sort of age range to the target market we were aiming at. And so I went to him and I said, listen, I need your designers to design this site for me. How would they design it? How would they, how would they drive this forward? And you know what? The, the concepts and ideas they came back with were so different to what we'd currently done. They were so, so far removed from our sort of blue and gray website. And they introduced pink and bright yellows and all kinds of things. And you know what? It had a big impact. And it was the lesson learned for me is actually, it's not what I think about this website. It's not the stuff that I tinker with. It's not the stuff that I think will be great here or there. I have to think about how does this website work for my consumer? That's the first question I've, I've got to think about. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I think the, I mean, one of the things that's fascinating is you've already mentioned sort of age, demographic, that kind of thing. And I have to be honest, sometimes when I talk to people who aren't in this industry and we start talking about the data we've got access to these days, which is going to be my next question about data and about analytics and that sort of thing. But 
with all this data, when I talk to people who aren't in the web industry, I get a mixture of comments that I do find all very amusing. Some of them are pure <laughs> stereotyping now. And it's like, I'm not, it's, it's in the numbers in front of me. Like, you know, this, yeah. this particular brand here is 90% blokes. Like we're selling chainsaws. It's 90% blokes and the 10% women. We've done a feedback survey and the 10% of the women on a chainsaw website, you can buy chainsaws to chop down trees. They all work for male dominated companies because we put that as a question, what is the male female mix? Yeah. And what's interesting is then, of course, I get all of the kind of your stereotyping. This is, a, I'm like, I'm not, it's just in the data. If anything, I'm doing the opposite. I'm actually trying to, um, or we as a, as a business, as a team and the, and the client, everyone's trying to get the best possible journey and the easiest possible journey for people to buy stuff. Mm. Because this isn't just about making money. That all kind of comes secondary, I think, after you've got the, this is our customer, this is what we do with it. Going off the angle then of data, what kind of data should people be looking at? So they've launched their store, they've made some sales. What kind of data should they be looking at to then make design changes or, or anything like that? And what, and what tools, as a sort of part two question, what tools should they be looking at to, uh, to get that information? The thing that I'm always keen to look at, obviously, I, I, I want to understand the demographics of mm. who's coming to my website. And beyond that, I want to understand where they're coming from. So is it true that most people over 40 are coming through Facebook ads? Is it true that most people 20 to 30 are coming through Instagram ads? Do you know what I mean? Or are they clicking something on Google? So what is my demographic and where is that demographic coming from is, is definitely one of the key things that I need to think about. And also, Things like uh, the data for me, which is really fascinating, are things like mm. once they're on the website, what do they do? Do they go straight to the product? Do they buy the product? Do they spend a bit of time reading about the product? Are they watching videos? Are they going to some kind of download we've got going onto that product? What are they doing once they get on there? And so understanding that journey, understanding your customer journey once they're on their website for your different demographic types. Oh, I think is just super, super valuable because you, once you understand that, you can start to tweak the design, you can start to tweak the layout and you can make decisions which are geared to around what is helping your customer. You know, if a lot of people are bailing on a certain page, is it because the copy is rubbish? Is it because the design's rubbish? Is it because it's not clear what the next call to action is? Mm. Is it because the pricing's all wrong? You can start to answer those questions once you understand, well, a lot of these people who are in this demographic are bailing on this page. So maybe I need to create a page specifically for them and lead them to that rather than this one uh, and helping them with the customer journey. And I think that's super, super important. I kind of liken it, I suppose, to <laughs> to a visit that I had to the Ted Baker store. I, I went to, I went to <laughs> always Ted a good Baker. place to start, Ted yeah, Baker. Yeah, always a good place. If you've never been to the Ted Baker store, go because it's an experience. I, I remember the difference between Ted Baker and Reese, right? I needed to buy some trousers and I have quite wide calf muscles. It's a genetic thing. I, <laughs> it just looks like I have very muscly legs. It's, it's one of those things. And so I walked into Reese and I said, listen, I need to get some trousers. And I was so exasperated at this point because everything in the world was skinny fit. And I said to the sales clerk in, in Reese, listen, if, if you can find me a pair of trousers that fits, I will buy every single pair you have in this shop, right? And so he was like, oh, challenge accepted. And I just basically <laughs> bought yep. me a load of pair of trousers and, and nothing fitted. Contrast that to going into Ted Baker. So I walk in there, a guy comes along, he measures me up, he takes out his tape measure, he has a look, he, he understands my problem. He said, try this on. That didn't fit. He goes, right, now try this one on. And it was a perfect fit. He got me there much quicker. 
right? So Reese just gave me a whole shed load of stuff, didn't really listen to what I was saying, kept bringing me skinny fit clothes. And after about 10 or 15 items of clothing, I'm like, I'm, I'm leaving. Ted Baker totally listened to me, got me to where I needed to be, and guess what, where I spent my money, right? And so it's this, how do I do that online? And we can use data to help us get there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think it's a really good analogy, and it's also a great answer of giving people the right kind of story and journey. And I think certainly, certainly in my world of SEO, PPC, people, if they looked for something, they've landed on your site. Uh, well, I mean, these days it's even harder for them to land on your site if you don't get the second bit right. And the second bit is, what does that landing page look like? What does it do? What does it say? Google these days, they're not just looking at, all these guys mention wide fit trousers, for example, or wide calf trousers or whatever your super niche keyword might be. They don't just look for it. They look at the whole experience and they say, right, how much is the product? How is it positioned? How is it situated? I think a bit of advice I would give while we're talking about data and we're talking about pages and we're talking about specifically pages for specific customers, I would highly recommend having a look at where people land on your website. And it's as simple as setting up Google Analytics. If you haven't already, leave it running for a few weeks to gather some data and then just go into the into behavior, into pages, into landing pages. And then add a set, what's called a secondary dimension, which you can Google. I don't mean to get too technical, so we try not to get too technical on these on these podcasts, but secondary dimensions. So you've got landing pages down the first column and you've got traffic source down the second column. And sort it by users or sessions or something. So you're looking at the big ones. What you're looking for is what are the most popular pages people land on and how do they get there? And the reason I say this is the home page is almost always the most landed on page of the site. But you'll probably find, not always, but probably find that the home page is not your new customer. It's normally your returning customer or returning to make their first purchase. So certainly if you're buying an expensive pair of shoes or a larger item, you're never going to purchase in your first journey. So looking at the landing pages, we always have an early conversation with our clients, or not always, but quite often. And it's around content and it's around design and user experience to say, actually, Google Shopping is probably driving most traffic from advertising, certainly in the early days. It's the easiest channel to get a good conversion rate from. There's not tons of clicks available, but you can get a decent decent start. And on Google Shopping, the policy is everybody, literally everybody has to land on a product. And bearing in mind, these are probably 90, 95% new people coming to your site and landing on a product page. So just as you were saying, Matt, if on that product page, it doesn't have any kind of welcome to the business. If it's just purely functional, price, size, uh, spec, delivery times, it's not really selling it, is it? It's just saying this is a whatever product. And that's where I think it's really important to then start looking at your landing pages and going, right, who lands on a collection on my Shopify store? Who lands on a product? Who lands on a blog post? And also how much revenue is there from a blog post land versus a product land versus a collection land? And you often find that blog posts do okay or from social and a bit of SEO. Collections do really well from SEO and products do really well from PPC because of the Google Shopping bit. That's that's normal for a business that's like one to three years old, still growing, still finding its feet. And as I say, if they land on that product page or that collection page and it's just like, here are some products, here is a price, buy it now, they're not ready. We know they're not ready. So if you then don't add, and this is where UX comes in and where it'd be really good to get, get your thoughts on this, Matt, if we talk about products first, how do you then lay out that journey, both for the customer that's come back and they're ready to buy, and you don't want them hunting around, where's the buy button? How do I actually purchase this? What's the delivery like? And all the kind of, you know, the sort of final pre-purchase points. You don't want to hide all of those, 
but you also need to cater to the new customer that's like, who's this brand? Who is this company? Is this product really what they say? How can they prove it's made from recycled bottles or whatever some of the USPs be? How, how do you go about that kind of design? How do you sort of shove a lot of stuff into not a lot of space? I think one of the interesting things for me is when we think about customers visiting our product pages, our landing pages, whichever page you're thinking about, I have a quadrant, a two axis quadrant, right, which gives you four squares. So on my vertical axis, I write the word knowledge. And this I want to, when I think about my customers, how much knowledge do they have about the product that they're trying to buy? Okay, so do they know a little bit? Do they know nothing? Do they know a lot? So if they're a returning customer, for example, like say on the beauty site, if they're a returning customer, guess what? They probably know what it is that they want. They've got some experience with that product. And so they, I would call those high knowledge customers. And on the horizontal axis, I write the word trust. Okay, so how much does this customer trust me as a brand, as a website? Okay, so if they are a first time visitor to my website, well, guess what? They're going to have low trust. But if they're a first time visitor that's been referred by a friend, well, they're going to have higher trust levels. If they're a returning visitor of mine and they've had a good experience, well, they're going to have high trust levels still, right? So I want to understand. From my point of view, I appreciate this is just how my brain works, but I want to understand how am I going to cater for all four of those customer types? So if I've got a customer with low knowledge and low trust, yeah, I'm not going to really do well there, but I need to create something on that landing page that starts to engage them. How do I educate? It's not how do I sell to them now? It's like, how do I start to educate these people, right? Both in terms of who we are to increase trust, but also to increase their knowledge. Can I put some links to some blog posts or some videos which helps them understand what's going on? And if I'm in the video, does that increase trust? And if I put in some customer reviews and maybe some customer generated content, does that increase the trust levels? If I put in there, am I part, I don't know, we have a, a, a website which sells vegan certified products. So if I put the Vegan Society logo on there, for example, well, that starts to build trust. But if I think about the, the knowledge aspects, I could have a low knowledge, low trust client. I could have a, no, a low knowledge, but a high trust client. So these may be people that have been referred to you or you've bought out a new product and they don't really know anything about it, but they trust you. Well, what can I put on the website for those guys? What can I put on the website for the guys that are high knowledge, but low trust? My experience here is actually the high knowledge, low trust people. They're often the price savvy people. They're the people that know exactly what they want and they've gone through 10 websites and they're looking for the best deal on that particular product and they don't care about anything else, right? So you've, you've got to lay out your page in such a way that communicates value. You don't have to be the cheapest, but you do have to communicate a really, really great value to them and, and tie into who they are as people, whether that's through your branding, through your packaging, through your maybe your environmental awareness or do you know what I mean? There's something which will tie into them, which you can use to increase your value. Mm -hmm. And then your dream client, your high knowledge, high trust clients. These are the people, like you say, they, they're going to come, they're going to buy on a regular basis. So using tools like subscription models or favorites or one-click carts, all of those kind of things work super, super well on those guys. But I think about those four quadrants and what can I do in each of those quadrants, knowing who these people are, that's going to help engage them to press either the buy now button, or if they're not ready to buy, that's going to take them on a journey of education with me to get them to a place where they will buy. 
Cool. I love the quadrants example. I think it displays the two key things, as you said, really, really clearly. Let's, let's get down to some of the technical stuff of this then, or the kind of outputs. So the philosophy is really strong. And I imagine there's people there going, I totally agree. What do I do next? So let's talk about trust. You've, you've listed quite a few things, the vegan society, customer generated content. Just give us like your top, whatever, the, the ones that just spring to mind, the things you can add to a landing page, a product page, or even the header of the site, the footer, whatever. Things you could add to your site to build trust to both the existing customer, the new customer. What sort of stuff would you put in that list? I would definitely have customer reviews. Um, reviews are a big thing. So display your customer reviews. And if you're just starting out or you're launching a new product, go and get 10 to 15 reviews before you even think about doing anything else, right? Before you um, turn it on on the website, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just give away the product ten, to 10 people that you can say, go write me a review on this product. Do you know what I mean? Do whatever you need to do to get those reviews in a fair and righteous way, but definitely get the reviews. I think it's so, so important. You know as well as I do, you go to a website, if a product's not got any reviews on it, you're like, I'm out. I'm not interested. They've not sold this before. Yeah, completely. Especially if they're displaying reviews and they're zero. That's like the worst, worst scenario. It's like, you're willing to tell me that nobody's bothered to review this thing. That's yeah. a terrible, yeah. terrible start. Yeah. And it's, I can tell you now, if there's, we've got four or 500 SKUs on one of our websites. Those products that don't have any reviews, they never sell a single thing. Yeah. And so part of our whole strategy is how do we get reviews on products? How do we do that? So reviews for me is a big one. One of the ways that I think works really, really well, and I think is so underutilized, but is such a quick win, and that is to do what I would call owner videos. What I mean by that is, let's say with the company that I mentioned, the, 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 we do supplements, food supplements that are vegan certified, right? Yeah. So vitamins, minerals, stuff like that. So one of the things that we're doing now, I've just got involved in that company. One of the things top on my list is to start doing owner videos. In other words, I'm going to sit down in front of a camera and talk about these products. Okay. I'm going to talk about them. I'm going to answer customer questions. I'm going to put that on video and I'm going to start to put that video content on that page. And there's a reason why I want to do that. It's because one, no one else is really doing it. Two, everybody is comforted by videos on your landing pages. They may not watch them. Here's the funny thing, right? You see a video on a web page, you probably won't watch it, but you feel comforted that it's there. It's a really odd phenomenon. But then there are people that will watch that video. And not only are they checking out the product, they're checking you out as the company owner or as the company spokesman. Do you know what I mean? They, they want to feel a certain way. They don't tell you this, obviously, but they want an emotional response to you as a business. And one of the best things that you can do is put one of your spokespeople out on this video and they can just start to build that unconscious relationship, certainly with customers that are low trust. It's, it's a great way to do that. So I would, I'd be looking at reviews. I'd be looking at video content on your website and not just the standard video content, which maybe comes from the brand that you're selling or any of that sort of nonsense. I would be like, I'm just going to do a video with a mobile phone. It doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. And in fact, sometimes that rawness and that authenticity works super well. And if you're worried about it, do it as an Instagram live 
and then pull that Instagram live feed in onto your product page. So you go, here's part of our Instagram live feed when we talked about this product. So then customers are kind of going, oh, well, this is not going to be like a, a QVC stage setup type product yeah, display. Yeah. But it sets the expectation, doesn't it? So yeah, it does totally. Low video quality can totally work. Yeah, that's exactly what I'd do. Cool. No, I love the example and I love the, uh, you've just reminded me of another guest we had on last summer, Chris Marshall from OnState. He's very, become a very good friend of mine over the years. And Chris, I can't remember if he said it on the podcast or in a meeting, but he says it a lot when we're working with clients that analytics will tell you what happened, but it won't tell you why. So sometimes you look at like the stats on who's clicked play on this video, who's actually expanded the reviews or clicked on the review tab. To see, and it may say zero, but that also might be fine. You might find that if you take the video off or you take the reviews off the page, it actually lowers conversion. And as you say, people aren't clicking go. They're just glancing at the thumbnail going, oh, well, that's pretty trustworthy that the CEO himself or herself is happy to jump on and talk about the uh, ethnicity of the company or the uh, how ethical we are in terms of the products we get hold of and all that sort of stuff. And I think it's, it's really powerful, especially in this day and age. I think yeah, it is. one thing the internet's done is you cannot hide these days. And so I think, yeah, moving on to the second point then. So that, that's about trust. And I think there's some really key examples. And I also love the fact they're very entry level. You don't have to be turning over millions to build trust. It's not a chicken and egg scenario. You can build trust no. without any of that. The second one then is value. So you mentioned the, right, I'm ready to buy. Let's go, go, go. Or I know exactly what product I want. 10 different stores sell it. I'm now just going on price, ease, delivery. How do you build value? What are some of the things you can put onto collections, onto products, onto your homepage, onto your blog post that show people there is a real value included from purchasing from this store? Everybody starts with the product, right? So you, you've got to start with the product. So let's say I'm selling fountain pens, for example. The only reason I mention fountain pens, I have one in front of me. So <laughs> okay. I don't actually sell fountain pens. But let's say I sell fountain pens online and I'm kind of thinking, right, someone's coming to this website mm. and they basically Googled this brand of pen, which is like, I've got a Lamy Safari fountain pen, right? They've gone and they've Googled it and they've come to my website. Now we're all selling at about a very similar sort of price. Maybe someone's trying to undercut me a little bit, but I need to convince somebody to buy this pen from me. Okay. Yep. Just putting up that web page is not enough to convince them to buy from me. So what can I do, which is going to help them buy from me? So then I start to think about, well, obviously, I've got, I can maybe have a good product choice. So maybe I could talk about different colors or maybe I could start to look at things like bundles. So if you buy this pen and this ink, then we'll throw this writing pad in for free. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not discounting, but I'm building value. Gifts with purchase for me are one of the most critical tools that we have. And the paper might, I actually cost me pence to source, but if I'm selling that paper of say for five quid on the website, well, then all of a sudden I'm adding quite insane levels of value to something which ordinarily I wasn't. So I would look for ways to use something like gifts with purchase, bundles, um, upsells, cross-sells to add value. The other thing that I think is probably one of the most misunderstood parts of e-commerce is the fact that up until, let's say I order the, the fountain pen, right, from, from the website. Yeah. Everything up until that transaction has been pixels. So the website may have looked good. The way it was laid out was great. It was well optimized. I like the bundle deal. You've convinced me to buy from you. You've got user-generated content on there. All those kind of things, right? So I've bought the pen. Yep. Now, at this point, your customer is the most vulnerable. They have given you their money, but they have not received anything in return. So what can you also do to add value 
at every stage, right? So I can then start to think about, right, well, Nick's ordered this fountain pen. What I'm going to do is say to him, Nick, here's your order confirmation. But not only that, here's first of five emails, which tells you how to write like a pro with your fountain pen. Do you know what I mean? And so I'm going to send you that email sequence. And I'm going to tell you that right on the product page. So when you buy the pen, it's like whenever you buy the pen, we'll, we'll send you our free course on how to write like a pro. And the other thing that I might put on the product page is how I wrap and send the product. Because maybe you didn't buy the product for yourself. Maybe you bought it as a gift. And you're really curious to know, how am I packaging this product? What kind of box does it come in? What does it come with? What courier do you use to send it? How can it be delivered to me? And so I can now start to add value with that, right? So one of the things that I appreciate, I'm jumping around between e-commerce businesses here. (laughs) One of the things that we did with our um, e-commerce business was we did exactly this, right? So in our beauty business, I looked at it and thought, when we send this product out, we just send it in a really brown, boring box, Mm. just like Amazon. The boxes are brown and boring. And you don't really get that excited when it arrives. And I wanted to create like this gift-like feel. And so I'm like, well, how can I do that? So we took out the the sort of the plastic bubbles that everybody was using at the time. And we decided to use a very different filler in the boxes to send the products out. And the product that we ended up choosing was actually popcorn. Okay. Nice. So yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. So we put a photo of that on our product pages. We ship your products out wrapped in popcorn. And guess what? People were loving that. We became known. I should eventually create a website called popcorn beauty or something because that's <laughs> that's what we became known for yeah, yeah which i thought was quite fascinating and so it's things like that and telling customers you're going to do it all increases value i remember ordering and this is how powerful this is and i think it says a lot about my character as i remember what came with it i remember receiving a nice big bag of haribo when i ordered mm. a sample pack yeah nothing exciting a free sample pack from a printing company called solo press in the uk mm-hmm. I don't even know if they're still going now, but we, we used to order our business cards from them. And in terms of value, they did these really nice triple thick business cards. Mm-hmm. So you'd have a white card on each side. that would be like a red line through the middle, which our brand is red. So things like that were really good. And when I ordered this sample pack and I said, I'm interested in business cards, they sent me about a hundred different business cards, all from real businesses. They clearly were just like extra ones that had been pulled out of a printing run or something hadn't cost them a penny in fact anything it was waste to them and they just chucked in a nice big one pound uh, or one dollar pack of haribo and i remember mm. sitting there eating this haribo looking through the cards of my staff going oh chuck us another one like while i'm looking at this triple thick embossed card or whatever and i think it really is powerful the way you package products i think you're absolutely right with that no totally because here's the thing right when you were eating those haribo around the table with your team saying oh let's let's look at these and while we're eating a haribo and never in that point did you think, am I going to buy my cards from this company? You had made that decision already. You're now thinking, which one am I going to buy? Yeah, absolutely. I think what's interesting about it as well, if we go, this has come up quite a bit so far in this series as well, is the emotive side of purchasing. I think a lot of store owners lose. And you could almost put most marketing managers that I've worked with over the years into two different camps. One is like so off in the clouds. It's like, oh, let's just do something nice and fun. And we're kind of sitting there going, no, no, we have to make money here or we're <laughs> going to be fired. And if, we, if we're fired from working for you because you've been so distracted by the Instagram's new Reels feature, or that, I do not want to be fired for that reason. And then we've got the other clients that are like just so gung-ho on like, what do the numbers say? What are they, this keyword is not converting, turn it off. And we're sitting there going, 
yeah, but attribution, it's always difficult to track. What if this keyword was actually driving all of the right customers in who are your biggest purchasers and purchase later? We, we need to take more of a blanket approach to this thing and sort of make sure we're in profit from what we can track. And then we'll take all the rest on top of that that we can't track and it's, it make a pretty good, pretty good guess that it's working. And I think you've got to balance those two sides. You are a business. You've got to make money. The revenue has to add up. E-commerce businesses can run out of cash so quickly. And I've seen it. I've experienced it myself. I've had lots of guests on the show over the last sort of 13, 14 months sharing exactly the same sort of stuff. We just ran out of cash. We just couldn't carry on yet. Everything was fine. It's just we didn't do our numbers. And so I think it's really, really important to get that balance right between us sitting there eating sweets and going, wow, sugar rush, I feel great. And we then mentally and emotionally always remember that company with fond memories because of, and I'll be honest, they mucked up three different orders we did later that year. We didn't care. And I'm sure it's because it came from the, oh, that's disappointing. They've, they've not done that right. We'll email them. Oh, they've sorted it out. They're sending some more. And actually it was all dealt with. I'm sure it's because of the Harry bone. It's because of the sample pack. And, and the fact that they also did next day delivery, that was another value add is you could order business cards before 3 p.m. today and have them arrive fully printed, really nice, packaged up by the end of tomorrow. And that's actually how yeah. I found them is going to my first networking group in my first business. Oh, I better take some cards to give out to all the other people there. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's a massive, massive, massive value add there. Let's talk about this a little bit further, but changing topic very slightly. When people are trying to improve their stores, I referenced this earlier about distractions and time management. And I think it's, it's a bigger killer than people realize. And that's like a really nice other spin I've just worked out on the spot around the killer Shopify store um, <laughs> angle of this, of this series. But the biggest killer to a lot of businesses is where the owner gets distracted with the wrong things. Like you were saying earlier about you designing stuff and then quite clearly you realize actually there's somebody else who can do it better, faster. And I could probably manage 50 to 100 people doing a job like that versus me just doing all of it on my own is limited by one person and not the best output. How do you think, or at what point do you think store owners should start looking for other skills or release control of design? Or how do we as business owners not get distracted by, you know, I've got a diary full of meetings today and, oh, where's the time gone? I've missed all of them because I've redesigned my website, which didn't need redesigning and it's not working as well anymore. And now I'm too busy catching up that I can't look at it. H how do you manage that time of knowing when to, when to do something in an e-commerce business, when to not? How much should the owner and founder be involved in the design process, do you think? Uh, for me, it comes down to priorities. So if I take the, I can give you a live world example. So you've got, for example, the, the vegan uh, food supplements that I mentioned. Yep. So I've sort of taken over that business in the last three months. It's quite a new business for us that we manage. And we obviously have shareholders now, which we're accountable to in that business. And so we're rebranding the company, we're rebranding the product. So we're working on that whole side of things now. And so it's a really interesting question, like who does what in that process? And I think yeah. for me, it comes down to priorities, right? So it's very easy to write down a list of everything that needs doing and you spend a bit of time writing it down. And then you can use something as simple as the one, two, three, or the red, green, amber, you know, the traffic light system, whatever works for you and just go, right. In terms of priorities, really, what are the most important things here for me to be getting on with? And then what are the most important things for the business? Because what's important for you is not necessarily what's important for the business. It's an important distinction. 
And so I write those two lists. And then you just have to have a really frank and honest conversation with yourself, which says, who is the best person to do that particular job? Yeah. Now, on occasions, it may well be you, right? But the reality of it is, it probably won't be. And if you can put your ego aside and just write down, who is the best person to do this job? Right. How much is that going to cost? And who's going to do it for me? You see, a lot of owners, they kind of think, well, because I'm doing it, it's free. It's the, the common sort of misconception, isn't oh, it? Oh, yes. I've been there. Uh, <laughs> more more yeah. often than I'm going to admit on this podcast today. But yeah. <laughs> you and me both. But you kind of come to the realization after a while. It's like, yes, I could do plumbing at my house, mm. right? I could genuinely, I could fix the plumbing. But here's the thing. One, I hate it. Two, there are much better people out there at it than me right? They're going to take half the time, they're going to require half the parts, and it's probably not going to need fixing after it's been done. And so the question is, am I prepared to stump up the 150 quid now to get them to do that versus me doing it on a Saturday afternoon? And you kind of have to weigh up the cost benefits of this. And as soon as you think of your time as something that is free, everything becomes a lot cheaper when you do it as yourself. But actually, if you think of your time, if you think about what a reasonable hourly rate is for you to do something. So if someone said to me, can you come do some plumbing for me? How much would I charge them to do that? Or better still, if someone came to me and said, Matt, can you come and help me with my e-commerce business? How much would you charge for that? All of a sudden, I am way more expensive than the plumber. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Because I'm actually accounting for the value of my time properly. Now, when you're just starting out, that's quite a tricky thing to do. But I think one of the signs of a mature business person is they start to understand the value of their time and it's not free. Yeah, definitely. I, I remember reading a book um, not so long ago and talking to some other people that I know who are fairly successful, now retired. And I've been asking about some really mundane stuff, nothing to do with web, things like, should we get a cleaner in our house? And all of them were like, you've got more than three staff. Of course, you should have a flipping cleaner. Why on earth are yeah. you pushing a hoover around when every minute, and this is something that we have a lot of conversations about in our house, especially regarding me, every minute I'm pushing a hoover around is a minute I'm not resting ahead of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And tomorrow is always a work day. Well, bar Saturday. It's the only day it's not. But either way, I'm heading towards a work day, whatever's going on. There are always going to be stressful things coming along. The better rested and level-headed I am going into those, the better. So then actually painting my house, washing my own car, getting my lovely wife to cut my own hair, all the it's just not worth it anymore. It really is mm. not worth it. And I think with the websites as well, it's, there's definitely a challenge and we won't cover it today just because of time. There's definitely a challenge in finding the right people for your business. I, I did a whole episode a while ago on kind of the myths about marketing agencies. And in that, I, I did talk very briefly about, I don't believe that there is a good or bad agency. There's just the right and wrong agency for you. Um, no agency exists without them doing a good job for some of their clients. And I hear clients a lot and, and people say, oh, this agency, they charge like this. They work like this. It's madness. And to me, I'm a, I, I don't disagree. It does sound like madness, but they've probably got a very different client base to us. Mm. They might only be charging £50 a month for their service where we charge 5000 which is you know, it's a completely different, completely different scale. Yeah. And so I think with, with running your e-commerce stores, I think everybody needs to have a real think about what's worth my time and what's not. And I think the only thing I would add to what you've just said, Matt, which I think is a really key point, is the bigger the business starts to get, the more valuable your time becomes. And I think that's where you start to understand, as you did say, in the early days, you do have to do everything because there is no one else. Yeah. But then as things grow, you need to start getting somebody else to do it. And there's always that danger, and I've had this with staff before, where 
you give them five jobs to do. And by the time you could have done those five, you've spent more time explaining to them, answering questions to them. So even learning about how you communicate each of those jobs to say, right, you are now, say, to say to them, oh, could you go and do this, please? And they look at it like, oh, I'm so confused. I don't know where to start. It's bad communication. But to say to somebody, right, I, this is where I want you to get this thing to. This is the metric, the KPI. You are now in charge. And I want you to feed back to me once a week or once a month and tell me how this thing is going. Mm. And then they come back two weeks later saying, we haven't made any progress yet. But now that I'm in charge of this, I've watched all these videos, I've done a bit of training, I've done a bit of learning, and these are the pillars I've put in place. And this is how I'm going to achieve this. And actually your target, I'm going to absolutely smash that because now I'm looking at it, we haven't scratched the surface on this thing. And I've had people in teams of mine who've come in quite new and very quickly gone, I'm going to learn this. And then these were the process docs for everybody else to follow. And I didn't ask for any of this, but I have delegated enough responsibility and control over to you that you are now in control of it. And I think that's, that's a really key thing. But equally, if you get that control of the wrong person, it can be an absolute disaster. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the egg that ruins the omelette is, is the polite yeah. way of putting it, I think. But cool. Well, look, let's come into land, Matt. We, we always do this. We plan to do 20 minutes and we end up doing an hour, uh, whatever happens yeah. on the podcast. But let's, <laughs> let's, let's come into land here. The last question I'm going to ask you, and again, just very quickly because of time, golden nuggets. Are there any specific changes you've made to sites that you've then gone, well, that was really effective, and then rolled it out across lots of sites and it's worked almost every time where there's been a definite trend of improvement. Anything people can take away as a final little, like, I'm going to go and try that on my site today and see if that increases conversion rate or, or sells more products. Yeah, I think for me, one of the things that I've learned over the years, and I, I come back to this point time and time again with a lot of people, actually, mm. is when someone comes to your website, unless they've come like via Google shopping, only a small percentage of them are actually ready to buy, which is why the conversion rates on most websites are like four to five percent. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? If depending on your industry, whatever it is, we have websites with conversion rates of about 20, 30 percent. They're very unique site. It's not usual. But even if you had a website that's got, say, 15 percent conversion, which is super high. OK, that means 85 percent of the people coming to your website have not bought anything. And we want to try and understand the reasons why. And we want to try and do something that is going to engage a chunk of those people. So if I take a typical product page, okay, so the typical product page selling the fountain pen, it's like, this is the fountain pen. Do you want to buy it? Yes or no. There's one button on the website, which says add to cart or buy now, right? And that's it. But what about the 85 people who are not ready to buy that pen at that point? don't just forget about them. What could you do that is going to engage them and take them further? And I would suggest that actually every product page should have two buttons on it, one which says buy now, and the other one, which is the button for the people who aren't ready to buy now. Okay. So what stops somebody from buying a fountain pen right now? Okay. And we need to, I don't know the answer to this question, so I'm just going to hypothesize. Yeah, so yeah, let's sure. say they're not ready to buy a fountain pen right now because they don't know how to write with a fountain pen and it scares them. It's just kind of like a romantic idea. Okay, so let's take that as a possibility. So on the website, I'm going to have buy now, as I normally would, with pictures of the pen. But somewhere on that website, in quite a prominent place, I'm going to put on there something which says, click here to access our course on everything you need to know on how to write beautifully with a fountain pen. 
in five easy steps or something like that, right? So I'm going to take what the big problems are, the big concerns, and I'm going to go, right, rather than these people just going, oh, that's nice. If I ever want to buy a fountain pen, it's going to be like 40 bucks and then just leave. I want to draw these people in. I want to somehow tell them they can do what they need to do to buy this fountain pen. So I'm then going to lead them onto some kind of content which is really going to be valuable and it's really going to help them because they're going to go, man, if they've given me this much content of this much value, that's awesome, right? I'm totally buying a pen from them right now because I feel like I'm empowered and can do it. And I now want to do what's actually in the email series with the pen and I need the pen to do the thing that I want to do, which is... I don't want a pen, I want to write. I want the writing to have been done is the outputs. I'm going to sort of appeal to that. Or maybe they're, like you say, why do they want to write with a fountain pen? Maybe they want to do a beautiful handwritten letter to their wife on their anniversary. Do you know what I mean? They've been married 25 years and they just want to write a beautiful handwritten letter because they've never done that before. And the, the wife has never been that enamored with his handwriting anyway. And so it's like, is that the reason? How can I help that person achieve that goal with these products? So what you can start to do is you can say, right, I'm getting a 15% sales conversion on my website, but I'm converting another 10% of the people that are coming to my webpage that weren't buying before. And what I mean by converting, I mean, I'm not necessarily selling to them today, but I am engaging with them or they're engaging with us. They're either giving me an email address, they've enrolled on a course, they've joined a Facebook group, they've started to watch a YouTube channel. They're doing something where I can re-engage with them and I'm helping them on their journey. And for me, it's the big thing that most e-commerce websites forget to do. They forget about the other 85, 90, 95 people that come to their website that actually don't buy But these are ideal people that, yes, we can retarget them on Facebook. We can show them more ads of our products because they've been on their website. But what else can we do? How can we engage them, build that trust, build that knowledge and get them to a place where they go, love this, totally want to buy? Yeah. I mean, we we call it nurture in the B2B world. So we know for a fact with B2B people that they're not going to buy a 50 million pounds IT system on a, on, on a web page on a Shopify store. It's just not going to happen. There's too many considerations. This could be a 10-year project. So there might be two or three years at the start before they actually go, right, give us a contract. We're ready. This is what we're going to do. So it's all about nurture. They sort of fill out a form, come to our conference, watch our demo videos, or speak to a salesperson. I think it's the same thing of, as you say, not ready to buy the pen today, but let's engage them in some sort of process, which is a much more subtle way of selling, which then means you are catering for the, the ones who trust, the ones that don't, the ones who are ready, the ones who aren't, bringing it back to your quadrant. So look, Matt, it's been really, really great to have you on the show. Really appreciate your time. I think there's been so many good learnings for anybody out there from super basic, super advanced. I'm sure you guys have got your homework. So thanks for being on the show. And how, how can people get in touch with you? Nick, let me tell you, it's been an absolute treat to be on your show. And obviously great to meet a fellow Brit podcaster. Loving that. Um, <laughs> That's why we first spoke. As yeah, well. it is. And uh, we were so excited because there's there's not enough of us, I feel. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to get hold of me, simply just go to the website, mattedmondson.com. All the links to my social media are there. The link to the podcast, the e-commerce podcast is there as well. If you want to listen to what we talk about on that. Yeah, mattedmondson.com. Head there. Love to connect with you in whatever channel works for you guys. Cool, cool. Now, thanks so much, Matt. And for everybody listening, we'll be back again next week. Um, we're hoping to have, I keep talking about him, my design friend. His name's Rich. We're hoping to have him next week. Given when we're recording this, we've got plenty of time to get him on. He and I, we just seem to be trying to clash diaries. We were supposed to have him in uh, a week or two ago. So uh, apologies for that, but we will get him in. So um, yeah, stay tuned. 
make sure you check out the website again, winningwithshopify.com. Go and suggest some episodes. Or if you're thinking of sponsoring, there's also a form on the website just to get in touch and start having a chat with either myself or my colleague Byron to talk about sponsorships. And we hope you're all staying safe and we'll be back again next week. So thanks for listening and we'll see you then. Sign up for free for the Shopify approved marketing course at 1000salesandbeyond.com and get our show notes at justaskparker.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the Winning with Shopify podcast. See you next time.